you'd like to go ahead and make your way over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll be there in just a few minutes. So we come to the last night of our meeting. It's been a really quick week, seems like to me. You may not feel that way, but certainly enjoyed being here and appreciate the five years ago elders for inviting me and the present elders for not canceling me for this meeting. So I've enjoyed being here. And as I mentioned on Sunday, it's not a place I go and say, well, I don't know many people here. I know just about everybody here from some walk of life and just I have just really enjoyed getting to talk to you, getting caught up with several of you that I hadn't seen for a while. I had some former students who've made their way here. It's really nice seeing them and just really thank you for the very warm reception to the message that you've given. It's always enjoyable for me when I do, especially like the morning lessons, where we're kind of dipping back into the Old Testament and looking at things carried forward, when people come out and say, have you ever thought? Because those are great thoughts. And it's things that you realize that in your own study you haven't caught, but here's somebody who has. And it's such a great way of sharing information. I appreciate a lot of those comments that have been made. I want to thank those of you who've had Pam and I over this week. We've got to be in a lot of homes this week and enjoy not only our host, but also you've invited others to come in. And so we've got to visit a whole lot. And that's been a highly enjoyable part of the week. I always like when Pam comes with me and she gets to hear some childhood stories and things of that nature and also get to visit with people or meet maybe sometimes people we don't know. So I could thank a lot of people, but there's always one group that I want to make sure I don't forget. Actually, two groups. One of them is the song leaders. Have you ever been in a congregation that has singing that's joyful, but not really good leadership? You know that's a challenge, right? And I think... Sometimes when you go to a church like Eastside or as where I am at Gooch Lane and you just got this plethora of good song leaders, you begin to take that for granted. And I really appreciate those of you who've taken hymns and you've kind of matched them up with the topics that I've been talking about. Really loved what you did tonight, Micah. That was, uh, that was so enjoyable to sing those songs in that way. And the other group I like to think are the parents. Now, y'all do super-duper meetings here. And so some of these kids have come out for morning and uh, evening services. And I know by Friday night, mama and daddy and kids are getting awfully tired. But that's how you learn, right? That's, that's how you learn these things. And you have just done very well uh, with that and appreciate it. And before I stop thinking, I do want to thank Steve uh, for his kind words I got to thinking, probably Steve and I go back about as far as most anybody that I keep in touch with now. And uh, since we moved to our new building, he's right next door, so it's great. It's like you've got a Bible encyclopedia within walking distance of you. And uh, I've told him a couple of times this week, he's used to my oddball questions, and then I'll throw one at him. So I really appreciate him, and I know you do. Uh, The things that I've heard not only this week, but at other times, I know that you are indeed blessed. And so I encourage all of you to appreciate what you have in Him and your song leaders and one another. When congregations begin to get a few years on them, a lot of times the numbers will start decreasing. And churches that maybe 15, 20 years ago were once vibrant or facing challenges, and yet here 
Now, the Eastside congregation seems to be doing very well, and I hope that you'll continue in that. Thank you again for all of the good that you've done for me this week. If you wear glasses, maybe you appreciate it more than others do, but have you ever thought about what life would be like if nobody had invented glasses? I've often thought that I don't know how much I could do, you know, how much my work I could do. Now, I'm not totally blind by any means, but yet I rely on that. I rely on this aid that takes my my vision that's not doing what it needs to and helps it out so that I can see clearly. And we're so blessed to have doctors who devote themselves to that. And, you know, you start saying which one's clear and which one's not and seeing the red barn and all those kinds of things. At the end of the, the appointment, you've got the perfect prescription so that you're seeing, unless something's majorly wrong, you're seeing almost 2020. You ever put anybody else's glasses on though? You're maybe as a kid, you take your grandma's glasses and you put them on. It's terrible, right? And maybe if you're like me, you've been wearing them for a long time, even as a kid. Maybe you took someone else's glasses and put them on over your glasses. And it's almost an instant headache, isn't it? (laughs) Because that's just not the way it's supposed to be. You're not supposed to take two different prescriptions and try to merge them together. And I use that illustration because tonight we're going to talk a little bit about what a temptation that is. I don't know when the term biblical worldview came into popularity. I tried to do a little research on it. I wasn't very successful. I couldn't find anything that said, well, in this year is where it began to be used more often. Regardless of whether it's new or whether it's been around a long time, it's a really good term. Because when you think about it, everybody, no matter who you are, where you are, you've got a worldview. You've got some way that you have learned to make sense of everything going on around you. And so if you were to travel to another country, you might find someone there who has a very different worldview than you do as being an American, living in a culture such as ours. But when you take the term worldview that everybody has and you put the word biblical in front of it, you begin to narrow it down to one prescription, to one thing. And what you're saying is, is that you're looking to the Bible to make sense out of everything that's going on around you. That is, you think about how the world is behaving itself, or you're thinking about how you need to behave yourself. Everything's going to be motivated through this. But yet, even in that very narrowed down sense, if we're not really careful, we begin to try to put on another pair of glasses. And what we'll do is we'll try to merge these two prescriptions together. And I think we'll see later in the lesson that that can get us into some difficulties. I'd like to do two things tonight. I want to begin here in the book of 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a church that needed to think about their focus. They needed to think about their biblical worldview. And then after we talk about Corinth a bit, I want us to move into some things that I believe all of us share in common that can be real challenges. 
that can be challenges for us to take ideas and try to blend and to merge them together in a way that we should not. But let's start here with what the Apostle Paul is going to tell this group of ancient Christians. One thing that's going to come out really clearly in the book is started as a foundation in chapters 1 and 2. And so as the Apostle Paul, though he doesn't use the term, it's very much what he's dealing with, as he says to them, you need to have a biblical worldview, he's going to say in chapter 2, verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's his worldview. He says, everything I'm looking at in the world, everything I'm preaching, everything I'm trying to communicate to you is passing through the cross of Jesus Christ. His death, His resurrection is what it makes, what makes everything make perfect sense is what He's telling them. And so as we think about that being what He's, he's encouraging them to do, He's going to take that idea and He's going to say, if you as group of Christians will all commit to having that Jesus crucified biblical worldview. He tells them this is what's going to unite you. This is what's going to make you one in Jesus Christ. We think about that from chapter 1 and verse 10 where he says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. In our very pluralistic culture, we oftentimes hear churches told, it really doesn't matter if you agree with other groups or not. You're all on the same road. You're all serving the same God. Some are going to follow this tradition. Some are going to follow that tradition. I'm not reading that in 1 Corinthians, are you? What the Apostle says is, if you train your vision on the cross of Jesus Christ, then you're going to speak the same thing. Your words are going to be the same. And your mindset, the way you're, you're processing is going to be the same. And your judgments are going to be the same. The problem is, is when you replace Jesus with something else. And that may sound like something that we would use to introduce uh, maybe a sermon on atheism or agnosticism, and that would certainly be appropriate. However, it can also be very appropriate when we're talking about Christian things, as is the case here in Corinth. And so as Paul is, is gearing up to get into some very heady topics within the book, he's saying, here's where we got to start. We've all got to be of the same mind. We've all got to try to think in the same way. I want us to look at a couple of things he tells them here when he says, if you're looking at the world through the lens of Jesus Christ, this is what's going to happen. Look here in chapter 1 down to verse 18. <clears throat> he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Is that how you think about good preaching? Is that how you think about the Bible and reading it and all of these things? The Apostle says, there's a lot of folks out there that will consider it foolish. We have no shortage of that in our own day, do we? But he says, for those who understand the power here, then you understand what salvation is all about. Look down to verse 24. He says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's a deep topic. Stretches all over the Bible, but you look especially at kind of the epicenter in the Old Testament of what we might refer to as wisdom literature, and you see the book of Proverbs, and you're seeing how the righteous person thinks. Well, that's a picture of Jesus Christ. And for those who are going to read that and follow it, then they're going to not only have the strength, they're also going to gain this wisdom. Now, Paul is going to tell the Corinthians, you got to make sure that nothing else is getting in your way. Look down to verse 27. He says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. As Paul oftentimes does. He gets this language that's getting your attention and he's showing it almost makes it appear that you're turning things upside down. But if you believe in the gospel, though there are others who are saying this is nothing, he's saying this is where you're going to find your strength. So we see this picture building, don't we? Here's the cross of Jesus viewing the world through it. You gain power. You gain wisdom. You let nothing else stand in the way. But then as we think about this from the, Paul, from the Apostle Paul's standpoint, he's saying this is how you're going to learn it. It's going to be through the preaching that comes through the Word of God. So verse 17, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul says, it's not about me. It's not about me. If there's any man who stands in a pulpit so that he can get attention, and he can get a following, and he can get praise, and his desire is for people to pat him on the back and tell him what a wonderful wordsmith he is, he needs to cover his mouth and sit down. That's what the apostles say. He's saying when you think about the worldview that's centered in the cross of Jesus Christ, it's not about the messenger, it's about the one behind the message. Now, we take all of that and we put it together. And we understand that when any sermon is preached, ultimately, that sermon should be traceable to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where it needs to lead. Now that doesn't mean every sermon's got to be on the crucifixion, but what that means is everything that we say that we are teaching by the authority of Christ had better be traceable back to the cross of Jesus. That's what it means to have a biblical worldview. And so that preaching, as we've said, is not self-proclamation. And we could also say with that, that the preaching is made known not by earthly means, but by something that's coming from heaven itself. We're not going to take time tonight to read this, but I'll direct your attention to chapter 2, where Paul's going to make the case here about the Spirit who's making all of this known. So here is the message that is God-breathed. Here's the message that's inspired, that's coming by the Holy Spirit. He's saying, this is where... You're going to find that worldview that you need to follow. Now Paul goes on to say you can understand whether or not you're of that mindset or not. 
Because he says the only people who are going to understand that are spiritually minded people. That makes sense, doesn't it? If the message of Christ is given by the Spirit, then the only people who are going to appreciate that are those whose minds are trained by the Spirit, by spiritual things. And this is really the point that he's wanting to make to the people of Corinth when he writes a little bit earlier in chapter 2, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. You ever wondered if you're spiritually minded or not? You ever have those questions? I think we all do. And so the Apostle's giving us an answer here. He says, you want to know if you're spiritually minded? How serious are you about the things delivered by the Spirit? How serious are you about, about putting these things in your life, of, of making sure these are the things you're, you're believing and that you're teaching? That's what it means. And so when we have that kind of mindset, he says, you're going to start getting away from this natural mindset. This worldly mindset, this out of Eden mindset, where you're no longer concerned about what God wants you to do, but you're more concerned about your place in the world and what you can get and what you can achieve. And so he gives us that very striking contrast. And then he puts it in about as clear terms as he can when we come down to verse 16. And he says, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let me ask you something. Can you make that statement? It's one of those that makes us a little uncomfortable, isn't it? We start thinking, can I really say I've got the mind of Christ? I've got this problem, I've got that problem. Paul seems pretty confident so. Because what Paul is saying is, when I think about anything, when I do anything, when I preach anything, everything is going through the prism of the cross of Jesus Christ. Everything is lining up with that world view. So then, we think about the Corinthians and all of the difficulties they faced. There were those who were putting Paul and Apollos and Cephas above Jesus. There were those who were arguing and bickering over, over gifts of the Spirit. There were those who were not really honoring their brethren in the Lord's Supper. All these different things. And so ultimately what the book of 1 Corinthians boils down to, kind of built on that foundation that we've looked at, is saying if you're going to correct all these problems, you've got to get yourself back in focus. You've got to be looking at this through a biblical worldview. Now, what the apostle wrote to the Corinthians is very much the same what he writes to us. As we read that personal letter, God is making it available to us because He says, these are the things you need to be doing. These are the things you need to understand. Because just as the Corinthians, if we are not careful, we begin to allow our vision to get blurry, putting on the double lenses, whatever we're doing. And we're not maintaining that focus that we need. Let me share just a few examples of that with you tonight. 
as we begin this part of the study, what we can say about all of these things that we're going to look at is that they're using the wrong source of authority. They're not going to what you know is true. And let me illustrate this little story I read. It said back in the day, uh, there was a small town that had a factory where most of the men worked. And one of the men had the job of every day at noon, he, rang, he blew the whistle for lunch. And it was a really stressful job because if he blew it one minute early, the boss got angry with him. If he blew it one minute late, the workers got angry with him. So he was pretty insistent on keeping the correct time on his watch. And so as he walked to work every day, he would pass a jewelry store. And like the old jewelry stores used to do, they sold clocks and they had a big one in the window. And he would pull out his watch and he would set it to line up with that clock to make sure that he was sounding the whistle at the correct time. He did this for months. And then he got to thinking, he wondered how the, the jeweler kept his clock accurate. So he stopped in one day and he said, how is it that you know this is the correct time? He said, well, there's this factory across town. And every day at noon, the whistle blows. <laughs> Two sources of authority, right? Two sources. Each of them thinking the other source was the correct one. And if we're not awfully careful, we do that. We'll see something, we'll think, well, surely that's a good source of authority, but we're not realizing that it does not have anything backing it up. Let me illustrate that to you. I think one of the things that really helps us to see this idea is to look at some of the statements of those that Jesus dealt with. They're particularly telling. One, he's having this conversation, they're, they're, Angry with him. They decide to go and arrest him. They send the soldiers to get him. So some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priest and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, nobody ever spoke like this man. You remember what follows? Chief priest and the Pharisees are angry. Say It says that they answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in them? You see that? What's their source of authority? None of us believe in Him, therefore He should not be believed. Wrong authority. There's another statement that they make that's also quite telling. When we think about as this, this story of the blind man that we addressed earlier in the week, notice what they say here. They reviled him, the blind man saying, you are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The blind, former blind man's kind of poking him a little bit. He says, do you want to be his disciple too? And their response is, well, we want to see where the true authority is. Instead, they say, we're going to Moses. Oddly enough, what would Moses have told them? And he told them already, there's going to be this one who rises up like me. That's what happens when you're looking at the wrong source of authority. Let's personalize that though. 
Because we can look at the Pharisees, we can look at the chief priest, we can say they had real problems, but what about us? Isn't there a danger when I make myself the authority? So, let's, let's do a little visualization of that here. Here I am, I'm, I'm trying to get the world view, and so I'm looking at the world, and I'm trying to decide what's right, what's wrong, what's moral, what's immoral. And I read the Apostle Paul, and he says, you need to do this through Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But yet, I follow that to an extent. But then I put on another set of glasses that looks a whole lot like me. And as I read my Bible, I begin to think, I don't know if I like the sound of that or not. Now that might not be an overt thing. Or we think about something we're to be doing or something we need to stop doing, and and it doesn't quite flow with our thought, and we say, "I, I think I want to quit that. Now here's the danger, if that wasn't dangerous enough. We take that idea of ourselves And we begin to judge others in that way. And we say, others are wrong. It's not me. You see, here's Jesus, and He's trying to bring the Pharisees to Him, but they're saying, you're the one who's in the wrong. Because they had on the wrong set of glasses. We can do that as well. When we look at the Bible, and someone tries to explain something to us, but because we don't like the sound of it, we'll say, well, I know that's what the Lord says, but really, what I think He means is, and you need to come around to my way of thinking, and it can get even worse than that. Sometimes, we feel that it's up to us to make sure we're pointing out all the errors of others. Now, let's, let's explain this, but a little asterisk by it. If someone is in the wrong, someone needs to be corrected. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is more of that pharisaical mindset that kind of puts yourself as the Jesus police. You're the ones who are going around and you're investigating all of the churches in the area and you're pointing out all of the things that you believe are wrong. See the danger there? That is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They had put themselves up as the authority. They said anyone who is not doing things our way is wrong. And while they could have said that, if they had any authority backing it up, the problem was it made themselves the authority. They had the wrong view, and yet here they were trying to enforce that view on others. That's a very dangerous thing to do. Let's look at a second way. Well, we talked about Paul's eloquent wisdom earlier. I think that fits here. Where sometimes that's what we use to try to convince others. But let's think about the second way. And that's when I allow others to become the authority. It's not so much that I'm trying to exert this influence. It's I'm allowing somebody else who doesn't have the right authority to to exert that influence on me. Again, let's kind of visualize this a bit. So here, looking at the world, trying to look through the lens of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, But instead what I do is I put a group kind of on top of that and I get this hybrid thing that it's not only the Bible, but it's my church that's also telling me what I need to do. Now, if the church is teaching truth, that's well and good. If they're teaching by the authority of the Bible, if they can back it up, well and good. 
But the danger that oftentimes occurs here is that this is where tradition can rise to the level of being considered law. Nothing wrong with tradition. In fact, tradition can be an excellent thing. A church can have a tradition of gospel meetings. A church can have a tradition of Bible classes. A church can do all kinds of things. It's going to be very helpful. But if it ever begins to equate to be on the same level as the Word of God, that's where the problem comes in. Again, the Pharisees proved that point. That's where we might call the creed creep. Getting into our teaching. A church says, we have no creed but the Bible. That's a good statement, but it better be true. A creed does not have to be written down to be a creed. Things can be enforced in such a way that you are putting rules and restrictions on someone that God hasn't done. And when we allow that to happen, The danger of that is we're allowing the wrong standard to begin to be used that's going to mess up that biblical worldview that we're supposed to have. You remember what Jesus said over in Mark chapter 7 and verse 7? He said, In vain do they worship Me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And we compare that to what Paul told Timothy when he said, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine. There's our two. There's our two. You've got on the one hand, those who are taking the doctrines of men, the commandments of men, and teaching them as though they're the will of God, when God says, what you need to be looking at is what I told you in my Word. Oh, it's easy to fall into that trap. I began to say, well, things will go much better if we enforce this rule. Now, we can suggest that. In fact, I think that's what good preaching does at times. is to say, here's a way to think about following this rule. Here's a way to, to emphasize faithfulness. But if we ever begin to use our ideas under the banner that it's the will of God, that's where we've messed things up. That's where our vision gets blurry. So we've got to be careful of both of those things. Now, final one I'd like to share with you is that we look for the wrong politics. I need to get a little bit of a running start on this point. If you think back to the 1980s, those of you who were alive then, you'll remember that in that time, there was a fairly conservative group of Protestants who began to realize and exercise their, their power. In fact, one of the men who was big in that time just died this past week. Pat Robertson, you remember that name? Very big in politics back in the 80s and early 90s. Probably the man, though, who stands out more is Jerry Falwell. He was conducting an interview with someone one time. I don't remember who it was. But whoever it was used the term moral majority. And Falwell stopped him and said, wait, back up for a minute. Tell me what you just said again. And he did. And from that, Falwell began to hone a group of religious people as kind of a political organization to which he loosely referred to as the moral majority. 
And what was learned in that time is that if you can get enough moral voters together, you can swing an election. You get enough people who are sincere about their faith and get them excited about a candidate or a party, you can use that to win the election. In fact, sometimes a political party cannot win without this group. And so suddenly, maybe not so suddenly, maybe it had been gradual, but in the 80s we began to see this coalescing of religious people who began to say, this is how we get our seat at the table. We've listened to these other people so long, these, these folks who are leading us in the wrong way. When we band together, we can begin to really change things. And from that was born... The idea that's still very much with us today, if you listen to politicians right now, they're going to be courting those who Falwell would have at one time referred to as the moral majority. That's been a very dangerous thing for religious people. I mentioned this a bit in a previous lesson, so I'll not go over all that again. But I will simply say this that I'm afraid there has been an increasing view that the political party is really the Savior. You see, I'm still a religious person. Still got my biblical worldview. But now what I'm going to do is to wear another set of glasses. So let's look at it. Here I am, right, wrong, moral, immoral, Christ and Him crucified, but yet now I'm beginning to see things through the elephant or through the donkey. And have you noticed how that impacts us? What begins to happen? The issues, as we call them politically, are no longer viewed strictly through Jesus Christ. We're not saying this is right or wrong based on here's our book chapter and verse for it. Instead, we're beginning to filter it through our political thoughts. And so when my party that's now my Savior begins to say, this is the way you ought to think about things, you begin to say, well, maybe that's right. Maybe that's how I need to think about it. And so what that leads to then is I begin to go with how my team is viewing the issues of the world. And I'm going to line up with them because after all, they're my kind of folks. They're moral like I am. We're going to coalesce and we're going to build this bond and we're going to change things. Sometimes we call that tribalism. I think that's a pretty good term for it because we are a very tribal society at the moment. And what that's doing is it's giving a credence to a group of people that we have perhaps very inadvertently have allowed to impact the way we're going to think about moral kinds of questions. But here's the main point I want to make to us tonight. I'm not discouraging anyone from voting. I'm not discouraging anyone from paying attention to the issues. I tell you, as long as God gives me the privilege of voting, I'm going to exercise it. Someone doesn't want to vote, I appreciate that conscientious decision. But here's what all of us have got to make sure of, is that we're not allowing our unity to be shattered by a donkey or an elephant. The bond that we have, the same mind and the same judgment 
that bond in Jesus Christ, we got to make sure we're not kind of looking out the corner of our eye at the Christian sitting over there who doesn't vote like I vote. And we must refrain from statements such as, I don't know how a Christian could possibly support. <laughs> Sometimes the R's get mad at the D's, and the D's get mad at the R's, and the R's get mad at the other R's, and the D's get mad at the other D's. And before too long, you got this whole problem that's creating friction where God says, that is not the way you view the world. And for certain, may we never ever think that there is a D or an R behind the name of Jesus Christ. You ever notice how groups try to get Jesus on their side? Well, if Jesus was alive, this is what He'd be. He'd be marching with us. He'd be standing with us. You know the sheer blasphemy of that? Here's a man who lived in one of the most treacherous political times ever, and yet what does he tell his apostles? Now go and teach them to pray for their emperor. Honor the emperor. No, we can't be that way. We've got to make sure that the cross of Christ is not cheapened by the taint of politics within it. That's not how we're viewing the world. So then, what I've got to do is find the right politics. You weren't expecting that, were you? You've got to find the right politics. Because the Bible is a very political book. Very political. It's put in political terms. Because here's a God who comes and He says, my kingdom is coming into this world. And I am the leader of this kingdom. And it requires supporting me to your fullest allegiance. And he says, it requires that you conform to my standards. Isn't it interesting that we're so tribal, but yet if we have our biblical worldview in mind, we're seeing the whole world given the opportunity to unite together in Jesus Christ. And so our king says, I want your allegiance. And the way you show your allegiance and your love for me is you trust my standards are the right ones and that you are going to be a loyal follower of me. You open the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, especially Mark, and you see him kind of mimicking that political language of the day, but everything's being applied to Jesus Christ and to His kingdom to come. And what this king is saying to us is the point I've been trying to stress to us tonight, that we see our world through Him. He says, my standards are the right ones because I created this place and I created you and I know what you need. That's the right politics. That's the king who saves. So here's what we got to understand as the writer of Hebrews would tell us. We are to be grateful for receiving a kingdom. Yeah, a kingdom. We're a part of that. When we call ourselves citizens of the kingdom of heaven, what we're saying is, is that we are in this body of believers that's being led by our King and therefore let us come before Him with worship, reverence, and all. May I share with you this? 
that if we ever think a president or a majority in Congress or the Supreme Court is going to save the day, we are going to be sorely disappointed. You ever really just fallen in love with a politician? Somebody who just gets your interest and you think this is going to be the one? We know what happens. Or we say if we can just get that next seat on the Supreme Court for our side, man, it's going to be great. Yet, you begin to look at the votes. That's the wrong politics. This is what Jesus said. He says that when you think about anything, your focus is on my cross and what I did for you. And you don't turn to your own standard. And you as a church, you don't make up your own standard. And you don't turn to the politics of men as your standard. Nor do you try to merge them all together with my standard. You just follow me. You just do what I tell you to do. And the outcome of that is going to be what God's been desiring since Genesis chapter 1. Are these things easy? They are not. Because we get caught up in the moment. But yet what we must realize is that if we are people who are going to maintain a worldview that is Bible-centered, that's exactly what we've got to do. And I hope you and I are up for that challenge. Thank you again tonight for your very good attention. So this is what? The twelfth invitation has been offered? Maybe tonight's the night. Wouldn't be great? Someone in our midst who's really been thinking through these things and maybe a bit of a struggle has looked at these passages where we've dealt with Jesus and we've seen Paul glorifying Jesus. And you made that decision that you're ready to become a child of His. I hope you'll do that. Whether it's now, as everybody will hear, join with you in praise and honor. Or whether it's a little later when there's not so many eyes watching, makes no difference. It's the fact that you put on Jesus Christ as your Savior. Savior of the world. Savior who says, come into my kingdom. And I'll share with you a view of the world that will bring you into the world to come. I hope you'll do that tonight. Maybe you're struggling as we all share in common. And maybe it's a struggle that you'd like for us to pray for. We'll be glad to do that. If there's a sin that you're ready to confess to God, we'll go to God with you in prayer. But wouldn't it be nice this evening if everyone in the room who's of age, who can reason and understand these things, could leave this building tonight with full assurance. Come what may in this world, the next stop is going to be that eternal kingdom with our Father, with our Savior, with the Spirit, and with all the people throughout the ages who've maintained a godly worldview. I hope you'll give that some thought. You can come now as we stand and sing together.